singularity. My name is Nicola, and you're watching Singularity FM, the place where we interview the future. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can show your support by either writing a brief review on iTunes or by simply becoming a patron via interviewthefuture.com. Today, my guest on the show is Roshi Jundo Cohen. Roshi Jundo is a former New Yorker, a lawyer, a husband, and a father of two, a cancer survivor, and a Japanese Soto Zen master. He's the founder of the Tea Tree Leaf Sangha and co-host of the Zen of Everything podcast. Roshi Jundo is also the author of the Zen Master's Dance, a guide to understanding Dogen and who you are in the universe, as well as an upcoming book provisionally titled Building the Future Buddha, the Koan of Robots, Genes, Saving the World and Traveling to the Stars. Don't forget saving the world. Yes. <laughs> Roshi Jundo, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. And I want to say to everyone, this is what happens when you write Socrates a fan letter and say that you've listened to almost every episode and how important it has been to you. And the next thing you know, he puts you on the show. So everybody, just remember that. Just all you got to do is write him a fan letter. And the next day, here you are. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, I have listened to you for hundreds of hours the book I wrote about uh, Buddhism of the future and saving the world, your podcast, guests from your podcast are on almost every page. Uh, it's been so important to me. It's such a unique source of information. Plus, as I told you, I usually listen while I'm exercising. So you're also responsible for me keeping off at least 50 pounds. So I got to thank you in all ways, Nicola. Oh my goodness, that's so fantastic. You have no idea how happy that makes me. And I've been always wanting to get a Zen master on my podcast uh, because as I've admitted multiple times previously on my podcast, uh, I have at the very least a, a great sympathy, if not outright passion for Zen. Uh, and and so uh, this will be just such a such a blast. And we are already you already got me in trouble with with your suggestion that everyone write to Socrates because he can get you on the show. But that's what Zen masters do. They get us all in trouble, don't they? Yeah, well, first, everybody uh, write uh, write uh, to Socrates with a fan letter and be sure to make a donation to keep this good podcast going. That's the <laughs> most important thing. And also, if you get a chance on iTunes, Put a good review. Wow. <laughs> You're a truly, I don't know if that was a classic Zen monk move uh, about the donations part and the support, or, or is that a modern move? What, what do we say? I've listened to every episode. I, I know, I know about all this. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So should I call you uh, Roshi or should I call you Jundo? Uh, I'm from my, my father from Bronx would say, don't call me late for dinner. So just please call me Jundo, uh, <laughs> which is actually what we call a, a, a Dharma name. We, we give these names kind of tongue in cheek. Uh, so it means pure way, which my teacher gave me because I'm not so pure. Uh, but uh, I, I, my, uh, my Buddhist name is Jundo. So Jundo is fine. And Jundo stands for pure way? 
Yeah, yeah, in Japanese, right. Wow, right. that's that's so interesting. If you don't mind me asking, Jundo, what is your birth name then from the Bronx? <laughs> what is my? Your birth name. My birth name, James. James, James Cohen. James Cohen. Well, yes. James Cohen, Jundo, Roshi Jundo. Let's start our conversation today with the first question that you're not going to be surprised by. Who is James Cohen, formerly now Roshi Jundo? Okay. Well, you would expect a Zen guy to answer you with something along the lines of the tree in the garden or the sound of one hand clapping, right? Which actually is a really good answer, which I hope to get to a little later to explain why that actually means something. Yeah, uh, I'm going to ask you about that for sure later on. Yes, please do. But uh, basically, I am a uh, kind of neurotic Jewish-born fellow who came from New York, who went to law school, and at the age of 20, was very confused about who I was and where I was going in life. I was, I was uh, in a very competitive law school. I, I was going to Duke, and they uh, had us arguing about everything. You know, a lawyer can argue about anything. It depends who's paying. We'll argue anything, any <laughs> side. You know, we don't care. And But I didn't know who I was. I was smoking too much. I was overweight. My dream of happiness was to have a red sports car. You know, I was very confused. And then somebody said, while I was in law school, come to the Zen group, sit down here, and put it all down. Put down the arguing. Put down the worry about where you're going. Put down who's right and who's wrong. And just sit quietly. And the contrast was obvious to me at that point. There are just some things that you can know, some things that you can understand and feel when we stop arguing and we stop trying to achieve, 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 and worry about who we are and what is our value. We just sit. They said, sit, and the point of sitting is just to sit. I said, well, what do I do? No, just sit. Sitting is complete. It was unique. So I've been doing that. That was, uh, I guess, coming up to 40 years ago. And uh, here I am. I've been in Japan about the last 30 years. And uh, as I said, uh, I, I'm still something of a lawyer. I do uh, translations Japanese. Uh, I support my family. Japanese Buddhist priests, unlike a lot of Buddhist priests in China and places like that, uh, Japanese Buddhist priests get married which uh, is why I have a wife and uh, two kids and uh, basically live here. And I'm in Science City, Scuba, Japan. Have you ever heard of Scuba? It is the yes. Silicon Valley of, of Japan. Japan. Yes, right. yes. We have lots of robotics, I think. Lots of robots. We've got a particle collider. We have uh, several supercomputers. And they just announced today that Japan's new quantum computing program is going to be right here in Scuba. And then there's me, who is this fellow leading a Zen group that a lot of the scientists and researchers come to because, you know, they're very analytical people, too. So I tell them, you know, OK, put down your theories and put down, 
you know, all the, 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 the research grants you're worried about and all the other things that these, these fellows and, and whether you're publishing or perishing, put it all down and just sit and they come. And uh, I've had at least one discovery in our Zen group because the fellow said when he was sitting, a great idea came to him. I'm not sure what the idea was, but uh, it's good for creative people just wow. to sit quietly. Absolutely. And Jundo, uh, it is my dream, the next step. So so the first part of my dream is already realizing itself, and that is to have a Zen master on my podcast. So thank you for that again. The second part of my dream is for me to come and visit you over there and, 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 and to spend some time with you. That would be like absolutely Whoa. amazing. Please do. Please do. But can I say something about the term Zen master? Absolutely, please. You know, that kind of thing can get a little overblown. Uh, and there are some people in the in the religion world, you know, who will play up their guru-ness. Right. Uh, and the image of uh, Zen must be a some kind of enlightened, perfect being. And my 11-year-old will, will tell you that her daddy is no enlightened, perfect being. <laughs> Mastery to me is something like musical mastery or being a master carpenter or being a, 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 a very good doctor. You're, you're skilled, you've learned something, you practice it, but it doesn't mean you know, that you're perfect, you, you make uh, mistakes. So when you use master, use it in the, your, your, uh, the, the Italian maestro, it just means teacher, you know, something like that. Doesn't, it's not so uh, uh, that, amazing, nothing amazing. Doesn't Roshi mean something to that effect to like an old man or an old teacher or, or, or a wise old guy, something to that effect? Yeah, it means uh, old guy. Old, old guy. guy. It means old teacher. Right. Yeah. But the joke in the uh, Zen world here is that uh, Roshi is someone who can get his students to call him Roshi. Then you're a Roshi. So. <laughs> That's brilliant. Uh, okay. So, so Jundo, uh, you didn't answer my question, though. And Which my is? question was, who is Jundo Cohen? So you told me about sitting, which is Zazen, which we're going to get back to, but you didn't answer my question. You didn't tell me who is Jundo. Well, Jundo is, uh, should I go back to the tree in the garden? You said someone who is sitting. Is that an answer? <laughs> Jundo is uh, a fellow who um, would be in, uh, let's see, much more prone to the bad sides of who I was, as far as my neuroses, my worry, my type A personality, if I hadn't sat. And then I've been sitting all these years, and it, what can I say? It, uh, it's a way to be home where we are uh, with what is. And uh, that's what our practice is. You know, uh, you know, I listen to your podcast all the time. And what I hear is people talking about the future and achieving and improving. And I, that's why I listen to it, because I believe we, we have a lot of problems in this world. We need to fix. We need to make something better in the future. But your guests very rarely say that things the way they are right now can also be recognized and accepted as just what they are. That's what I'm here to tell you about.
Wow. And we're going to, to talk about that for sure. So I want to divide our conversation today in three parts, perhaps. The first and very briefly, I just want to touch on on the Jundo Cohen, the James Cohen story about the Jewish kid from the Bronx who gets mm-hmm. a law degree at Duke's, who goes to be a student in China and ends up as a Zen master in Japan. So I, I just want to touch a bit briefly on that story so that we know you as a as a person. Uh, then I want you to lay out the foundation for us of, uh, of, of Buddhism in general and then Zen Buddhism in particular and how perhaps Zen Buddhism is a little bit different than traditional Buddhism. And then perhaps the second, so that will be hopefully the first half of our conversation and then hopefully the second half, we are going to talk about what, if anything, can Jundo Coin tell us about the future, things like artificial intelligence, genetic manipulation, robotics, and all kinds of other funky technologies, and perhaps uh, uh, Zen Buddhism in general, w- what can that kind of attitude or, or teaching or, 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 or um, stance in life, perhaps, if I should call it that way, mm-hmm. can, can help us with in, in the present for the future? Uh, and of course, I'm going to challenge you on a couple of paradoxes. Uh, on the one hand, you said that um, home is here in the now. Uh, and I even forget how you said it, but it was beautifully, beautifully said. Home is here in the now, in the presence. Uh, and I, I love that. But on the other hand, which is very Buddhist, of course. But on the other hand, we're going to be talking about the future. So I find that to be paradoxical coming from a Zen from a Zen. Uh, master so zen, so zen zen folks are very paradoxical that's what we do you know <laughs> but okay. yeah yeah what i wanted uh, to say is i you know buddhism has a, a few uh unique insights that i think could actually contribute to some of your guests the advantage i have is that I'm not a scientist. I'm one of the few guests you've had here who's not a scientist. I have a liberal arts education, went to law school, and now I'm, I'm a, a Zen fellow, which means I can you know, kind of shoot out a few crazy ideas here and then say, you know, I take no responsibility, let someone else prove it. <laughs> But I'm going to try as best I can today to keep things down to earth because I do not believe in a religion that's just out there. It, it has to make a kind of sense. So we're going to get to this later, but I hope I can even get past the Socrates test because you are very skeptical of any idea that doesn't hold water. So I'm going to try to shoot out a couple of wild things to you, but hopefully they're plausible. Okay. Sure. Okay. But, and but first you so- wanted to. Socrates is not about uh, telling others what to think, but simply being the midwife to other people's great ideas, hopefully. So our audience will be free to, I'm not going to hide my opinion, of course, as usual, but I'm right. not going to impose it on anyone. So my audience will choose and pick and decide for themselves. Uh, but yes, going back to, to the Jewish kid from Bronx, Right. how do you end up as a student in China after a law degree? So let's say you, you did your law degree, You had that kind of Jewish American kid dream to go to law school. You went to Duke, mm-hmm. which is a great, you know, Ivy League school. I'm sure you were going to get the red sports car eventually. I don't know if you ever got it, but I'm sure you were going to get it eventually. All lawyers could afford a, a sports red car. And yet somehow you went on a sitting Zazen meditation class, it seems, from what you just told me. And 
You ended up uh, doing a stint as a student in China, studying what? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Duke, uh, thank you. It's a very good school. It's not Ivy League, but it, it's a thank you. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, I grew up in a family where my father, during the Depression, didn't get to graduate from high school. And uh, they were working people. And for that, there was a, a lot of uh, pressure to, when you got to school. This was the big family's chance. And I really felt guilty about that because everybody in my class wanted to get right onto Wall Street. And I had the chance to go to China, but because by chance, I, I, I had a couple of friends who were some of the first Chinese students to come over. So I got to go to China, which somehow my, my family agreed to. It made no sense because wow. they were really struggling, you know, wow. but they said, oh, my father said, you know, I never got to travel. I, I never got to go anywhere. You go, you go. And it changed everything for me. I met my wife there. She's Japanese. I, I met her there. But I, it's very good this happened because I would have been a terrible lawyer. In fact, I was, I am a terrible lawyer. And one of the reasons is, you know, my clients would come in and you're a lawyer and they want to fight about money. And, and you're told, you know, that everything's about the more your clients fight, the more the lawyer gets paid. You know, it's a scam. It's a scam. You know, so my boss would say, you know, keep keep them arguing, you know, tell them, you know, we got to keep the lawsuit going. And I would say to my clients, really, you know, money is not so important. Come on, guys, find some peace inside. Don't litigate, meditate, you know, and my boss would say, no, 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 no. So it's a good thing I left that world. And when I got the, a chance to uh, come to Japan uh now it's uh, about 30 years ago. Uh, it, it just was much better. Uh, I worked here as I gradually, I came, I was illiterate, as most people are. You know, when you come to a, a new country, you have to start uh, from the bottom. It takes about uh, five years to even learn to read Japanese, and it took some time. But with time, I got settled here. And then there were the Zen temples here, and I was very lucky that I got to uh, practice with some of the uh, very good Zen teachers here, and I just uh, kept going, and here I am now. That's pretty much it. My goodness! And so, so you uh, met your Japanese wife in China? Yes. How yes. is that even possible? And was that the eighties? It was about nineteen eighty-five, and we were uh, students at the uh, Renmin Dashui, the the People's University. And this was before I went back to China recently. I didn't recognize it. This was back in the days people were still wearing the Mao suits and the riding right. bicycles. Right. And uh, it was just coming out of the Cultural Revolution just a few years before. Very different from the, the, the China now. So right. uh, my wife and I were in the same dormitory. And uh, she spoke a little English. And I spoke uh, basically a very bad Chinese. And we somehow uh, communicated. And, and now we've been married almost... Uh, Boy, 28 years, so. What were you studying there? Uh, good question. <laughs> I was supposed to be studying law, but again, the, 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 uh, that was not my real interest. So my real interest was just the culture and the, the people. And in those days, uh, China was just opening. You could get on a train. You could go anywhere from Tibet to Xinjiang. Xinjiang now, you know, is terrible. It's having great oppression now. Uh, there, there are talk there that the, the Chinese government is really clamping down uh, 
Um, and, but in those days, it was wide open. You could go as far as the Pakistani border without any fear. It was beautiful up to Mongolia. So we, we just uh, traveled and uh, saw the country. So in some ways, actually, unfortunately, 80s post-Mao pre-Tiananmen Square China was kind of more free, it seems, than it is now. Is, is that about right, the, the, the vibe that I'm getting? Because well, right now, still... it's especially now during the Olympics, there's all these kinds of restrictions and insane surveillance of everyone, but especially foreigners and so on. Well, no, it was it was pretty much controlled there. Our room was bugged, and uh, we had a oh. KGB agent in the on the same floor as the school, whose wow. job was to keep watch on us. And wow. you couldn't go anywhere. And I got uh, stopped one time for accidentally going too close to a military base, purely by accident. So wow. it was not totally free. Wow. But uh, in those days, the stores were empty. You'd go into a store and you have a choice of uh, maybe one shirt or one pair of shoes. It was very little. And now it's, uh, it, it has become a, uh, not only the source of all the material goods that we're, making, we're buying in excess, but the source of manufacture, uh, as you know, and just excess. It's, it's just uh, unbelievable. The air... Uh, when I was there uh, was the air pollution problem is very serious. I don't mean to put down China. If we have any listeners listening from China, it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful country, but it is also the source of many of the problems we're facing about uh, materialism, for example, right now. Right. Uh, I think right now, well, we'll talk about that a little bit uh, later, perhaps. Uh, yeah. I actually had a friend who came from China and spent a, uh, two years there and and he told me the, that old classical China because I told him I love Eastern Eastern Chinese philosophy like Taoism for example, the Tao Te King is like a classic and he said that China that you're talking about is dead in China uh, Chinese now are, are especially the younger generation are more westernized so if you're kind of uh uh, a Chinese fan of traditional Chinese ethics and virtues and, and classics. They're fans of uh, traditional Western capitalist measures of success, the bling, the, the money, the, the financial growth, the, the economic growth, the business success, the, the, the acquisition of big houses and properties and cars and mistresses. And, and it's, it's a whole different kind of a culture, uh, uh, supposedly. Well, I'll also say from living in Japan for so many years that if you look, the traditions are alive here too. And in some ways, they're more alive than ever because in the, the old days, only the elite had access to many of these things. And today, it is much easier actually to find many traditional arts, including poetry and painting, if you look for it. So it depends, you know, the glass is half full, the glass is half empty. Right, right. Uh, it's there if you look. It's there if you look. I like that. Okay, well said. If It's there if you look. Very well. So, okay, let's... That's that's a fascinating story, but I think it gives us a little glimpse of of who Jundo Cohen is. That's why I like I like those kinds of of stories. Plus, I mean, how many people can say they've spent time in in China in the in the mid nineteen eighties and they had like a secret agent or a, apparently not so secret, like let's say state security agent 
on the same floor in their dorm and watching their activities, which I totally believe because, as you know, I grew up in communist Bulgaria. So I know how our state security would kind of attach themselves to foreign visitors and, and monitor to make sure that everything is okay because it was extremely, exceedingly rare for us to allow even foreigners to get through the Iron Curtain and, and so, sort of stay, visit even for a little bit, but let alone study and stay for a longer period in, in communist Bulgaria pre-collapse uh, of, the, of, the, uh, of the, you know, the Warsaw Pact. Uh, but let's talk uh, about Buddhism. So mm. what I, I like to lay out the foundations first, if, if, if we can, and then build our conversation from there. So what is Buddhism in general and Zen Buddhism in particular? All right. Well, Buddhism is actually a religion much like any other that is filled with some incredible beliefs that I would struggle to believe in. For example, <laughs> people have an image that Buddhism is a very modern, science-compatible religion, and it can be. That's one of the points of my being here today. But there are many aspects to Buddhism that are just fantastic. For example, did you know that traditionally most Buddhists, and many still do, believe that the world is flat? I've heard a that, giant... but I didn't know it's it's the traditional view. Yes, yes. There's a huge mountain in the middle, and we live on one of the four continents. There's only four on a flat earth that surrounds this mountain called Mount Sumeru. And basically at the high levels, there are various gods. And if you go down, there are various hells. Hells that are as fire and brimstone. They, they would make a Mississippi preacher blush. <laughs> And we have beliefs, for example, that if you do bad in this life or in a previous life, you're going to uh, eventually have to pay the price. You're going to come back as a, as a snake or go down to one of those hells, you know. So it's filled, people, you know, I'm here as a Buddhist to say that not everything about Buddhist, Buddhism is modern compatible. I want to say that. But... There is much that can be. You don't have to believe in all those things. For example, as I tell people, Zen Buddhists, which I uh, represent, we accept what is. So if science tells us the world is round, then it's round. And if science one day tells us the world is flat, we're fine with that too. We're fine <laughs> with whatever. So that's why it's science compatible, because we accept what is. And if we find out that uh, there is no coming back as a, as a snake in the next life, we say, concentrate on this life. But let me get, the Buddha was uh, a man, a human being who lived in India about 2,500 years ago. And some compare him to a philosopher or a psychologist because he has some recommendations about human suffering. He knew that our divided thinking thinking that we are opposed to the world creates friction, creates disappointments, creates fear, creates a sadness when we lose. And he found a way to reverse that division and friction so that a lot of, uh, well, all the suffering from a, a certain standpoint can kind of evaporate. So that was the, the Buddha's original teaching. And he also had a vision of 
a wholeness to reality where we are not just someone existing in the world, we are the whole embodied in us, which I know, you know, sounds a little woo-woo to a lot of people, but my job today is to be able to explain this in a logical fashion that people might say, hey, you know, that actually might be, that actually kind of makes uh, some sense. Because if you eliminate the division and the friction, you have peace. Well, uh, and that's not necessarily so woo-woo because I think some some parts, at least, of quantum mechanics may be pushing us towards that kind of a conclusion, um, especially when it comes to entanglement and spooky action from a distance, as Albert Einstein would, would have called it in the past. Uh, but so you said that Buddhism was concerned with suffering and the Buddha figured out a way to deal with suffering what's what's that way what's his remedy well first off there are different flavors of buddhism too buddhism is as complicated as christianity is Jude. there are if you have a hundred buddhists you have 200 flavors of buddhism it's like <laughs> uh, so again i'm speaking as a soto zen buddhist which is one particular flavor you have early buddhism that said this world is kind of hopeless and the only Peace will come when you are not reborn anymore. Because this life, there's something irredeemable about it. It cannot be fixed. That was a, a very common uh, kind of uh, skeptical about life vision of early India. Then you also have other flavors of Buddhism that are very similar to Christianity, where a Buddha, uh, for example, a fellow named Amida Buddha, was very much like Jesus. If you have faith in him, at, on your deathbed, he will take you to a very good place, a kind of a heaven called the Pure Land. That's another flavor of Buddhism. But the Zen Buddhists said that there is another way to find peace and uh, identity in this life. And that is to realize the wholeness. And I, I, the first thing I wrote you, Socrates, was that your, your, your podcast is called The Singularity Podcast, about we're working towards the singularity. And I know you mean the technological singularity. But I said that, you know, according to our beliefs, we are already the singularity because all things are a singularity. It's been a singularity since the Big Bang or whatever came before the Big Bang, all you have now is that singularity expanding. Unfolding, it's yeah. never left us. People think that the universe somehow broke into pieces and we're one piece and we bang and clash and fight with all the other pieces. But the job of a Zen Buddhist is for us to realize that we are still the singularity, that there is still a unity and when that happens, all the friction disappears. That's yeah, what and we that, do. That reminds me, by the way, too, because, of course, the origins of Buddhism in general and even Zen Buddhism in particular, which is a subset or a, or a, or a track of Buddhism, are sort of Indian. Uh, and, of course, in India we have, uh, my understanding is that the yoga tradition is, is a bit older than Buddhism. Uh, right. And, of course, the idea or the, the whole point of yoga and, and the meaning of yoga is, quote, to become one with the universe. 
It's right. not but to do some kind of a weird twisting of the body. That's just a means. That's just the tool that would allow us to hopefully, eventually, ultimately become one with the universe. So in that sense, you have that kind of ideological lineage from yoga through, uh, you know, Buddhism, and then eventually in Zen Buddhism for us to kind of become one with the universe, if you will. Many Eastern beliefs, including Taoism, they all have this similar take. Now, exactly. we don't actually have to become one with the universe. The, the idea is that we always have been. We have forgotten it. Right, to realize it or to wake up to the fact, to, to, to that reality. And there's a reason I can explain to your listeners right now why we've forgotten it. May Please. I? Our encounter with reality is a virtual model created between the ears. As you know, sense data enters the senses, is turned into electrochemical signals, and in the mind, some kind of, shall we say, simulation or model of an outside world is being created. But I think, you know, your guests will realize that if they've seen their own loved one, they've never actually seen the loved one except as this recreation between the mind. If you go out and you see a lovely tree, the tree, I hope, I'm not such an idealist that I think everything is in the mind. Something is out there, but largely we are creating a model that we live in that is a mental realm inside us. Now, part of that is a sense of division. We create an image that there's a me and there's everything else that's not me. And the me ends at the skin line. And the me goes to the top of my head and the bottom of my feet and began when I was born and ends when I die, okay? It's true. I mean, that would be obvious. It would be ridiculous for me to argue otherwise. But the point of Zen Buddhism is that is not the only mental model you can create. There are perfectly valid alternative mental models in which the border softens or drops away. You do not have to end at your skin line. And you can redefine yourself. I'm just defining myself as this person, Jundo, inside, and there is Nicola, and there is my cat over there, and there is the tree outside. But it is perfectly valid to also say that we can redefine ourselves to include the cat, to include the tree, to include Nicola as one great whole thing, which is what we are. Why not? Why do we have to say we're only the separate individual? Why can we not also see ourselves as the whole kit and caboodle? I think it was Rumi, the poet Rumi, who said, you are another version of me. I am another version of you. Yes, we believe that, in fact, the mind, for example, is not only... Now, now, you know, people think I'm going to talk about some woo-woo cosmic consciousness. I don't, that's, I don't want to go there. I can tell you, though, in a perfectly understandable way, that your mind is not only what's happening between the ears. And I, I think a lot of uh, neuropsychologists today would not disagree. 
in order for you to experience who you are, you have to have an outside world to relate to that gives you definition. For example, I see a tree. It's a green tree. It's a beautiful green tree. And I'm assuming something's out there, some, let's say, configuration of atoms. But the name tree, the definition of tree, the experience of greenness depends on the photons encountering my eyes to create within me an experience of green that doesn't exist unless it's the two of us dancing together. You need, you need the photons, you need my brain to turn it into the experience of greenness. And then you need my personal judgment, oh, that's beautiful. And then my hand reaches out, grabs an apple and, and eats it. It's a feedback loop. The mind is what's happening inside and the outside and my reaction to it. And that's how we define ourselves. And so... But let me ask you here just for a second, if I may, because uh, there may be a, an interesting parallel with what people like Elon Musk and others have said here a little for a second. So in Buddhism, classical Buddhism, there is this idea of Maya, that everything is an illusion. Now, the modern lingo, the modern way of saying that same thing is either the simulation idea or the matrix idea, which is the matrix is a simulation, right? So does that, are you saying that in Buddhism, we're thinking in a way you're saying we live in a simulation created in, whether it's in our mind or kind of between our ears or whatever, we are creating that kind of a simulation. So it's all actually an illusion. Yes. Now, I, when you say simulation, is there a simulator? Is there someone who created the simulation or is it a natural phenomenon? I'm not going to address that here, but we are living in a mind-created simulation in which, I, I don't know a percentage, I'm going to say the vast majority of what we encounter is not actually there. There's a, a fellow, uh, Hoffman, who has the theory that we're living in a world that is like the icons on a computer screen. You see a file and you think, you know, you click on that and the file opens and your data comes out, but there's no file there. It represents very complex processes that are actually happening in the computer that are summarized for us as the little icon on your desktop. Well, it's very similar to us. I can give you the most basic thing we see, for example, a toaster. I get up in the morning and I see a toaster and we're sure it's what's what is what can be denied about there being a toaster there. But the toaster, as your, your guest, I, I saw Noam Chomsky might say, is basically a name and an idea that we have appended to some, let's say, a physical process that gives heat, that does something to carbohydrates, which we put in our mouth, which uh, apparently feeds ourselves. But we have come to call this thing a toaster. There's no toaster there. There's something there that produces heat, but the rest of it is our own adding on. A baby is not born with an idea of a toaster. A space alien who came, who, who never ate toast, would have no idea what he was seeing. But we, we share the common language. We share the common human brain. We share the common experience. So you and I are convinced in our mutual dream, our mutual illusion, that there are toasters. And we're both living in delusion. There are no toasters, my friend. 
Yeah, yeah. In the Matrix, they say there is no spoon. But there is a, a neuroscientist, and there is a number of neuroscientists. One of them is a neo-Seth, but another one that I've been watching recently is called Bo Lotto, I think, or Biolotto. Maybe it's pronounced Bo Lotto or Biolotto. Anyway, fantastic guy. He has a number of TED Talks, and he talks about the fact that uh, information is meaningless. It's all the context that gives it meaning, and the context comes from us. It's not contained in the information. So again... As you described, the idea of the toaster, the, the context surrounding that machine which burns out carbohydrates comes from outside the machine. So without that context, that machine, that item has no meaning, right? Uh, we are living in a kind of shared dream. Now, it's not a dream like when we sleep, because if I dream right now, I'm going to levitate up in the air. I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, so this is a dream that seems to be constrained by certain uh, physical properties, like the law of gravity. There's a certain predictability here. Uh, it's not that whatever I think is going to come true. But a lot of this is a, a mental realm that we are creating. And sometimes we create it in ugly ways. If we have a heart filled with anger and violence, we create a nightmare. If we have a heart that's filled with peace and generosity, we can create a good dream. This is also another level of Buddhism. Because we are living in this kind of world that is created by our hearts and our actions, we can make this dream what we want. I think that's what your podcast is really about, isn't it, Nicola? You want to create a good dream for the future. Exactly. And, and to me, from a sort of an ethical point of view, uh, it is pointless whether to, to ask whether we live in a simulation or not. The point is whether we live well within that simulation, whether we're living the right way, whether we're, we're taking the right actions, whether we're making the right choices, ethically speaking. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't matter if you're making those choices in a simulated reality or in a real reality. The point is to make the right choices because we cannot control the simulation we cannot control whether it's a real reality or a simulated reality, but we can ideally, hopefully, control our choices, our decisions. And that's where my own personal ethics stems from. So, yes. But let me ask you, though, here, uh, because this is probably a good segue towards uh, a little bit of a Buddhist ethics, ethics because you touched a, a little about the metaphysics and you're kind of, a, let's, let's say, a skeptical Buddhist with respect to the Buddhist metaphysics. And I mm -hmm. respect that, and I love it. And by the way, that's, that's amazing that you can be a Buddhist and yet kind of be skeptical uh, about the whole Buddhist metaphysics. Yeah. Well, if I may say, when people come to me and they ask, do you believe in those future lives? Do you believe that we're reborn? I said, I'm going to tell you, I'm a Zen teacher, but I'm not a dead Zen teacher. So I really don't know. And I have a, a, a hunch that when you read those old Zen books of people saying about these future lives and future worlds, that was the religious imagination. I, I, that's what I think. But I said, it doesn't matter. Because if there are future lives or heavens and hells, live gently in this life. And if there are no future heavens and hell. Live gently Still in this life. Live gently in this life. That's yeah. the most important thing. Exactly right. Yes, I love it. I love it. Okay, so then we come to the question, 
how do we live gently in this life? In other words, what does Zen in general, and especially your flavor, which is, you know, Soto Zen is, is a little bit different than, let's say, Rinzai Zen. So what is the, the recipe that Soto Zen can teach us so that we can cook our life in the most delicious and nutritious uh, and healthiest way possible? Well, this is uh, something that's important, not just for the individual, but uh, if we're going to save this planet, which is what my other book about building the future Buddha, Buddha, Buddha is about, it's something that we're going to have to get in all our bones. And it's the following. Number one, moderation. We have a tendency as human beings to go to excess in many ways. We need to have desires. Some people think that Buddha, Buddhism is to be free of all desire, which is impossible. You need desire just to get out of bed in the morning. You need desire just to put on your pants. Uh, we wouldn't have gotten to the moon without desire. People think that uh, the purpose of uh, Zen is just to sit there staring at a wall, free of all desire. Well, we would starve. We, we wouldn't achieve nothing. Our, uh, so desire itself is not a bad thing. Excess desire, what we call greed, the insatiable desire, and the frustration that comes from that, and the violence when my desires are frustrated by you, and I'm going to, to beat you over the head for it because you uh, are, are, are taking something I want or you are disappointing me. This is the problem. We have to be free of violence and anger too. Now, again, people say, do, does that mean that uh, we have to be perfectly peaceful about everything? And I'm going to say, as the father of a teenager, I don't think that's possible. Uh, <laughs> because, you know, it's okay, it's okay to be, as a human being, a little upset. Or, you know, we have social problems. And I say, people say to me, can I protest? I feel righteous indignation. I say, a little righteous indignation about the problems we have in the world is fine. This is the human condition. This is fine to be a human being. But when it goes to excess, and I will not only feel a little upset, but I am willing to take action against you and hurt you, that's the trouble. We have to moderate. We have to be free of violence and anger. Tone it down. And you want to know, the whole thing of my book is, we don't have to make perfect world. I think a lot of your podcast, uh, when it talks about the technological singularity, after that, perhaps everything will be perfect. And I'm going to tell you, a Buddhist would say, it's never perfect. It's never going to be. Or it's ever. already perfect as it is. Well, that's the one thing. You know, it's two ways to look at it. It's perfect as it is if you accept things just as they are with equanimity. But it's also true that it's never going to be in a way that completely satisfies what you personally want. This world's always going to have problems. Something is always going to be a, a something we have to fix. We have to accept that. But we can do that at the same time that we learn that uh, it's okay. It's all right the way it is. Who you know? is it that said? If you see the Buddha, kill the Buddha. That means 
uh, it's not about real violence. It's a, a fellow named Hakuin said that, and it's actually not about that kind of violence. Violence Buddhists would not actually kill someone if they. Can no, it's not it. a, the way I understand it. It's not about violence. It's about the idea that perfection never arrives. That the Buddha, Buddha, it's like the the ideal Platonic form doesn't really exist. The ideal Buddha form uh, doesn't really exist. So if you see someone posing as that, it is not it. It, it may be close to it, but it's not it. It's a mere reflection in the end, just like Plato would say, a, a shadow on the wall. That's a very good way to, to look at it. Uh, some people think that a, a Buddha is a perfect being who never makes a mistake, never has uh, a bad day. Uh, he had no hair, they would say, so he never has a bad hair day. He never gets <laughs> off on the wrong side of the bed. I just don't... I don't believe that. I think that if you actually met uh, these holy people from the past, you would find that oh, some excellent people, maybe some truly saintly people, excellent, wonderful people, but never a perfect person. And you're never going to have an, an absolutely perfect world. And that saying about killing Buddha means don't just, uh, you have to make it your own teaching. Don't listen to what someone else is saying. So, you know, you're, you're listening to what I'm saying here, but you have to go practice and experience this for yourself. These are just words until you actually experience it. But one of the things we can experience in Zen is seemingly opposite, incongruous, conflicting beliefs can be simultaneously held as true. We already touched on one in which we see ourselves as the wholeness but we also are the individual, right? Another one, as we mentioned, is you can sit in perfect equanimity. This is what we do when we meditate in Zazen. We sit and just accept and flow and be all things as they are, not wanting to change one thing, feeling that the world is just what it is, nothing to add or take away, okay? And we sit there and it's very whole and peaceful. Then we get up when it's done, get back to work. This world has some problems. Let's go fix them. You have projects to build. Let's reach for the stars. We can do both. And sometimes I listen to your guests and I say they know one, but maybe they could use to know the other. I'm, I'm talking about those life extension people, for example. Okay. I'm all for life ex extension. I'd, I'd like to live, I think, uh, oh, 140 sounds good. I don't know. I don't want to push it too <laughs> far because, frankly, I think there's going to be a problem there. If we push it too far, what about the people who never get to be born if we don't make room for them? So it would be selfish to, to go on for too long, you know. But 140, that would be good if I get a chance. But if you're going to live to 140, please learn to be content every second of the way every second of the way. How do you I, do that, though? Because as Epicurus says, for those for whom enough is not enough, nothing is enough. I compare it to climbing a mountain, which is, uh, let's say you're at the bottom of the mountain, you want to get to the top and to the other side. Uh, that is our life. We get up, we have things to do, we want to build. Many of your people, a lot of Silicon Valley people, they're design, designers, they're movers and shakers, they're thinkers. That's good. They're climbing the mountain. But you can also learn that every step of the mountain 
is its own arrival. You're just here and you're just here and you're just here. And you might find on the twisty path of life, sometimes it goes ways you wish, sometimes it goes ways that are not so pleasing. You can still learn that every step is just what it is. It's all the mountain. And, you know, to get a little wooey, we Buddhists also believe that we find in that great wholeness, the mountain is also you walking. You're walking the mountain, you think it's you, but it's also the mountain walking up your feet. It's all one great thing, we think. And this is what we experience. Yeah, and you know what? Uh, I had a very good lesson just on what you're talking about, just like before we started this podcast, because... You know, you're in Japan, so we started the interview at 9.30 p.m. your time, but I was 7.30 a.m. my time. And I had like a very bad night of sleep for a diversity of reasons. I had a, a, a bad migraine. And so my dream was like, my, my hope was like after having a restless night to just sort of wake up and wash my face with really, really cold water to wake myself up, then then make myself a real good tea. And of course, I wake up and it turns out for whatever reason, our building has no water. So no running water and I can't even wash my face. And of course, my wife, I, I, now lucky for me, I grew up in communist Bulgaria and we had uh, issues with, not so much with water because we had lots of water, but with electricity. And sometimes when you lose electricity, you know, if you live up, somewhere up on the higher stories, you, you don't get water too. So anyway, I'm kind of mentally more okay with the idea. My wife immediately basically got downstairs to the parking lot, got in the car and went to her mom's house because <laughs> she has to, you know, take a shower in the morning, do her hair and, and she has a whole busy day and she can't have that productive busy day. It can't start right unless she has water. Basically, it's impossible. So she went to her mom's to do what she's used to have done every day before she has a good day and for and you know i'm wasted i couldn't have you know tea i couldn't wash my face uh you know i struggle with it but then i was like you know what i'm just about to interview a buddhist zen master on my podcast who seems like a great guy and i'm gonna have a blast and I'm going to enjoy it. And yes, maybe I'm not at my best. I'm a bit wasted. I didn't sleep. I couldn't even wash my face. I was rushing around like a headless chicken trying to set up everything here at 7.30 a.m. in the morning. It is what it is. And I'm going to have a is. blast. And the now, as you said in the beginning, home is here now. So I might as well get comfortable and accept what it is, it is the home that I have without water. It is what it is. And there's a lot worse things in life. Now, it, it's funny you mentioned migraines because I, I do have a, a lot of people in our uh, Buddhist group who have problems like that. And, and someone will come to me, will the Zen help take away my migraines? And I will tell them honestly, you know, people make all kinds of claims for meditation. Will it help cure something? And I say, really? I don't think it will. I don't think I, it may relax you. I don't know. Maybe indirectly will have some effect in reducing migraines. I have no, I don't think it does anything for migraines. You have to see a doctor about your migraines and I'm really sorry for your migraines, but what it will do 
is on some level, as you're sitting there moaning and growing, and this was when I had my cancer, I experienced this. Man, after I had my surgery, I felt like a donkey had kicked me in the chest. I was terrible for weeks. Wow, I'm so sorry. What kind of cancer? Sorry to ask, but... I, I had esophageal cancer, but it's it's okay. I'm still here, still here. Esophi the, the esophagus? Yes, yes, yes. Hmm. But... You see a doctor for a medical problem. If you have no water in the apartment, you call a plumber. Zen guy is not going to get you water in the apartment. You got to talk to the super and the, the plumber. Well, what it can do is in the middle of the pain and discomfort, deep down, let you accept even that. When I was in the hospital bed, I, I tell this story. I found kind of a switch inside. And one moment I was absolutely in pain and miserable and lonely. And I missed being home with my family. I missed my wife. I missed the kids. I missed the cat. Then I found a switch inside from my Zen experience. I've been sitting, this was only a few years ago. So I, I knew what I was doing. And I hit the switch and suddenly I'm content. There was no other place I'd rather be than that hospital bed. Somehow it's just what life is. This is the whole universe pouring into this moment. Okay. That moment uh, so is the your pain home. still there. Huh? That moment is your home at that moment. It was. The pain was still there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not telling yeah. you it was a it was a you know it was a bowl of roses. It wasn't. But there was a peace, an abiding peace, because the resistance dropped. I let it be. And then a couple of minutes later, I went back to being miserable and I hit the switch again and I could go back and forth. You can learn this. This is what we practice in our meditation uh, practice. Uh, I know uh, I have a friend right now in Ukraine and uh, they may be in the war zone. And I said, my friend, I wish I could bring world peace. I wish I could take that away. And he's an old Zen guy. And he said, whatever happens, we're going to just keep working here for peace and we're going to accept what is. Because acceptance does not mean giving up. I went every day to my physical therapy to get better. But at the same time, every moment can be accepted. You see, that's what we have to learn in this world. We may want to get to the future. Where everything's perfect. More important is let's get to the present and realize it is what it is. And as we treat, keep trying to fix those problems, that's good too. But accept the moment too. Do both. Yeah, that, that's incredible. And by the way, that's a very stoic philosophy uh, kind of an attitude uh, because the Stoics had that, that idea of, of accepting, uh, of acceptance. And people all often confuse that with passivity or, or with surrender. And it's neither. It's actually, it not. Uh, it, it, it's actually a, 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 an empowering position where you lose, and by the way, they talk a lot about attachment, just like the Buddhists. So you ideally surrender the attachment to the outcome. You surrender the attachment to to the kind of predicament you're facing. Face the fact that you have no control over either. And from that position onwards, do the best that you can what you think is right. And so it's, it's, in a way, a very empowering position about focusing not on what you cannot control, which is the outcome and which is the predicament you're facing, right? You cannot control the fact that you're, you're having cancer and you cannot control whether you would make it or not. I actually had a friend uh, who was in his early 40s, like 41 years old, who died from uh, 
uh, esophageal cancer. Uh, it was terrible. They had several operations. Every time they had to remove a bigger piece. Uh, at the end, he was unable to speak because there was so much removed here that the vocal cords, everything was damaged. And yet, unfortunately, even that didn't help. So it was kind of, and he deteriorated, by the way, very quickly from uh, in about maybe 18 months to two years from I, like 39, 40 to 42, and he was dead. And I had a horrible. friend who was a longtime Zen practitioner who had a cancer much worse than than mine. She she had stage four and it was eventually terminal. And she went through the chemotherapy and she went through it all. And part of it was so difficult for her, as you can imagine, but there was a part that accepted it every step of the way. You can do both, folks. This is the lesson. You know, Mar you said Stoics. Marcus Aurelius was an emperor. He was a mover and shaker. He ran yeah. the Roman Empire. Yeah. And yet... And yet he was a stoic who also accepted conditions. The thing is you can have dreams, but don't strangle yourself in your dreams. You can have goals, but also learn at the same time as having goals that one can be what we call goalless. When we sit, we put down all the goals, all the needs, all the clutching. You can do both at once. You can have goals and also a heart which is content and goalless. It's not an either or. People think it's either I have goals or I don't. Either I know peace or I am fighting for something that I'm working for something. No, you can work for something and no contentment at once. You can have goals and also this other part of you, right? I compare it to, you know, we see life out of two sides. Let's say you saw life out of the right eye. You know, I'm a mover and shaker and I got things I'm working for. And out of the left eye, contentment and there's nothing to change and there's nothing to work for. And you open both eyes together and you see the world with a certain clarity where you can be a dreamer and you can be a planner. And at the same time, know this taste of nothing more in need of doing. It's not an either or proposition. Yeah, and that kind of a paradoxical attitude towards life. By the way, Epicurus was dying uh, a very painful death, supposedly from kidney cancer. Uh, and he's famous for saying, give me a pot of cheese and I can compete with, with Zeus on happiness. Uh, so in other words, he, he would say that you really don't need that much to be happy. Uh, and supposedly that was true until the very last moment of his life when he was dying uh, in his bathtub, supposedly, uh, from a very painful kidney cancer. Uh, he was uh, surrounded by a couple of his students and he supposedly drank uh, like a glass or two. He asked for a glass of wine or something like that. Uh, and he was very jovial and happy until the last moment. And then he took a couple of sips of wine and he took off. He, he was dead. Can I uh, try something a little challenging here? Sure, please. Because I'm on a show of uh, great rational thinkers and skeptics. I want to propose to you an alternative take. Uh, this is a Buddhist take, a Zen take on birth and death, where I can, in a few sentences, kind of convince you that we don't die because we were never born. Now, this is, again, 
I don't want to get into religions and spirits and souls. This is not what I'm talking about. I'm going to say something so simple that people say, well, from that perspective, maybe he's got a point. Okay? Please. Give me a minute. Sure. Okay. If you define yourself not only as the individual, but as the whole, then so long as the whole keeps going, you keep going. What do I mean by that? The classic example is the wave which appears on the surface of the sea. The wave is just, of course, the sea flowing and a wave appears, exists for a time, then fades back, crashes on the shoal. This is similar to our life or anything that comes into existence or vanishes. If the wave were to become self-conscious like we do, it might think that I'm an independent being, right? It doesn't realize that it's also the sea. But to the extent that the wave can redefine its self-identity as always having been the sea, it was always the water of the sea, it's, after it disappears, it's, there's still the water of the sea, to the extent that we or the wave can define itself as being the greater whole, so long as the whole continues, we continue. Now, of course, that's not going to do Socrates and Jundo much good, because we're someday going to be kaput. I'm not trying to say that we go on. I'm saying that this facet of who we are always as the greater whole continues because that's all we've ever been. And so long as it is, we are. From that sense, we can realize our life is not just this coming and going. You Does know, make a little sense? makes a lot of sense. Uh, the wave is a manifestation of the sea. And actually, I had a conversation with uh, 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 one of the best futurists I know of John Smart uh, just yesterday. We are setting up, uh, he's got a new book, uh, Introduction to Foresight, fantastic book. And we were just pre having a preliminary conversation about an interview I'll do with him in, in March. And one of the things, and he's a very rational, reasonable guy, very methodical and systemic in his approach to everything and he was telling me that the net from evo he has this model called evo devo or evo devo evo devo uh, kind of a evolutionary uh, model and he was telling me that the, that it's all about these kind of networks of life evolutionary networks and the networks are immortal the individuals come and go but the networks of life continue spreading and there may be different manifestations in terms of different species in different times of evolutionary development and all that stuff. So the dinosaurs come and the dinosaurs go and there's extinctions and all those things. But the network continues one way or another. Uh, and so, so actually what, what you said about the wave being a manifestation of the sea uh, makes perfect sense because John Smart would be talking to us about that evo-devo model and, and how the network is kind of immortal, even if the individuals may not be. The, uh, uh, bi biology, it, it makes this very clear that the, the, the tree is part of the forest, which is part of the greater ecosystem. The mistake we, we, we might make is we think we're just part of the ecosystem, where the Buddhist might say, no, we are the ecosystem in microcosm. We are an expression in one place, you know. 
We are the universe in one as much as the universe is us kind of deal. Yes, yes. Uh, I, you know, I like to say that, uh, you know, we have a strange way of, of looking at reality in, in Buddhism. This is also, uh, has a certain, this, Buddhism has a certain logic to it. It's just not our ordinary logic, which is why you have all those strange koans, like I said, the sound of one hand clapping. But here's an example. Usually you say that Socrates has his left hand and his right hand, right? Okay. And the left hand is the left hand. It's not the right hand. And the right hand is the right hand, not the left hand. And this is how we look at all the separate things in the world. The Buddhist would say that the left hand is Nicola, is Socrates. And the right hand is Socrates. It's an expression. It's, a micro, it's Socrates in, 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 in a certain place, in a certain microcosm. So the left hand is Socrates. The right hand is Socrates. Socrates is Socrates. Therefore, the left hand is the right hand on the left, and the right hand is the left hand on the right. Yeah, that's that. That's just like Rumi's thing, Rumi's verse that you're another version of me and I'm another version of you. It's it's brilliant. Only this is just about kind of so, like the whole right. in the one in the one in the whole. Now expand that out to every moment and thing and uh, other sentient being in the universe and you find the same. Each is, for example, I am an ant who is not who is sitting here talking to Nicola, and the ant is Jundo in the anthill. This is how we, we see it. And I, I, it's a lot, it's very difficult for modern people to get their, this perspective, but it, it's true. Every part of you is you and therefore is each other. Carl Sagan used to say, we're all stardust. Yes. Uh, which which kind of also pushes us towards that direction, that, that we are the universe right here, uh, or we are stardusts from long dead stars. So the, stars, the... suns had to die to create the material, the atoms that are the building blocks that create us, that we are a manifestation of us. Of, uh, the ants of, and Socrates and the imaginary toasters and Jundo, yes, it's all stardust. It is true. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so, we, Jundo, uh, yeah, I want to move on to to talking a little bit about technology and and the future. But just last thing to close the loop on the one hand, the sound of one hand clapping. I've always wanted to ask a, a, a Zen master, what's the sound of one hand clapping, Jundo? Well, again. These sayings are not for me to explain. It, this has to be something tasted. If I say to you, Nicola, your left hand is your right hand on the left, you know, that's kind of, maybe I can get my head around that. But when we sit and we experience these things, you must actually have insight and the borders of separation do drop away. So uh, a lot of this is not something I can explain, but these sayings like that, you would think that it takes two hands to clap because we live in a divided world of two hands. I just was speaking of the left hand and right hand. But when you realize that it's all this one thing, there is only one hand and that's the sound. Wow, I like that. There is only one hand and that's the sound. 
Wow. But so, don't so... listen to me. I'm Zen guys. We lose our licenses. Zen guys, if we explain too much, you're supposed to sit and, ex and express and, and taste this for yourself. Right. Experience. That's it what it means. means. Kill the Buddha. Don't listen to someone tell you what it is. You got to find it for yourself. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Okay. So. So let's let's talk about something else here, which is kind of our future oriented part of the conversation here. Uh, now, so on the one hand, you say, don't listen to myself. On the other hand, you wrote a whole book I had a little glimpse of about, you know, building the future Buddha. So you're saying, listen to my book or read my book at least, right? So, so that's another kind of a Buddhist paradox right there. Uh, but putting that to the side a little bit, what can Zen Buddhism in particular tell us about, let's start first with, with the biggest problems that humanity is facing today, perhaps. Uh, what are the biggest problems that we're facing today in your view? Are they really problems? Because, you know, uh, I think it was Slavoj Žižek who said that philosophy is that which tells you that uh, it's that which never solves any problems, but simply shows you that the problem you thought you had, you never had, or it doesn't exist or something to that effect. And I think that that's kind of like, you can say that about Buddhism in a way, right? The problems we, we thought we had, we don't really have and didn't exist in the first place. So we don't have to solve anything really in some ways. No, we got problems, baby. We do. Oh, boy. I told you we accept everything as it is, so there's no problems. But from the other eye, oh, boy, do we have problems. And those problems uh, basically come down to uh, a couple of things. Uh, excess consumption, greed. Uh, we cannot, we don't know how to be satisfied with enough. Buddhism teaches us that there's a healthy, moderate enough I don't need 27 pairs of shoes. I need one pair of shoes at a time, a good comfortable pair of shoes. I need healthy food. I don't need to stuff my face. I don't need to buy and buy and buy to be happy. And we live in a world that's giving the lesson that you have to consume and consume and consume. We do not know how to be happy with moderate amounts, which is leading to other problems such as that global warming thing that, uh, is uh, I would put at the top of my list for one of the great problems we're facing and violence, violence and cruelty and a lack of sharing and concern for others. And this is where I think, I wrote the book about Buddhism in the future because I think Buddhism and all the other religions and all the other humanist philosophies have kind of failed to improve the human condition on these fronts to make us more generous, more peaceful, more giving, more moderate. That's what they've been trying to do for thousands of years. I think all the, the great so preachers So how do we become, said, how would Zen Buddhism in general and Jundo, Roshi Jundo in particular, help us be you, happy with less? To be, do you want the traditional answer or the answer in my book for the future? Whatever you, you think is the right one. I don't know. Let, let, let me give you the, the traditional take. The traditional take was if you went to a monastery and you meditated and you moderated 
your emotions and your desires and lived very simply, you would know some peace. And it's true. And it's very effective for many, many people. The trouble is it's not effective for society as a whole. I think it did make some people live in very healthy, moderate ways. But obviously, as you said, with all the, the Chinese monasteries, it hasn't worked for the rest of China. Uh, or the rest, I'm a, I'm a teacher here in Japan and, and it hasn't worked for Japan. This is a place of consume and consume and consume and buy and buy and buy. Uh, they're pretty peaceful uh, folks generally here in, in Japan for the most part, but uh, human violence still exists. So we have to say, how do we spread this message in the future? That's what my book's about. Building so the how? future Buddha. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get there. First off, I want to say, I don't think that we're actually doing too bad. I think for the most part, we're living in a society where we are succeeding for the most part in greatly reducing poverty. We are finding cures for many diseases. Wars uh, still happen and uh, we have terrible weapons. If we make a few small changes, this world really could be much better. Uh, it's not gonna be perfect, but all we need to do is moderate our desires. Yeah, you know, I know I make it sound simple. All we need to do is moderate our desires and learn to be peacefully, live peacefully. And here's where I'm going to say something that is a little controversial perhaps. And maybe only a, a Jewish, someone of Jewish heritage who lost actually some relatives, a little distant, but in the concentration camps to uh, people planning the human race, could say this because I'm so hesitant. We have to change perhaps the human genome so that we are satisfied with more moderate consumption and desire. And wow, I think so. Now, again, what's the, I, the reason I caution? I, I get people, I don't hear this on your show a lot because it smacks of eugenics, or oh, you're talking about building the mastery. Absolutely not. I'm saying we have to do some things if we're going to survive as a human race to make us more generous, more tolerant and peaceful, less prone to excess, less prone to violence, and more moderate in our consumption. And if we did that, if we could create within ourselves that, this world would be pretty good. Not perfect, but pretty good. But that's kind of, uh, let me, so I, I, I want to challenge you here at two levels. So, so let me step back first. You know, you're giving us kind of the better angels of our nature uh, argument that, you know, we're not too bad overall and we've made some progress and you know we have improved historically speaking and all that stuff and that may be true debatable but let's say we accept it to be kind of true for the human race because uh, it's a very anthropomorphic human-centric argument humanistic argument on the other hand Jundo we kill 74 billion 
animals on our planet annually and something like 1.2 or even 1.3 trillion aquatic organisms. You know, we kill hundreds of millions of sharks, we kill dolphins in Japan especially, you know, the cove, like all kinds of sea organism, fish, you name it, we kill them by the trillions every year. So mm -hmm. from that point of view, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not the Buddhist, but if we're talking Buddhism, in my opinion, and, and I'm, I'm going to go, you went on a limb there with your claim, and we're going to go back to it, but let me go out on a limb too and say that, in my opinion, Buddhism is kind of like utilitarianism. It maximizes for the minimum amount of total suffering. So the Buddhist optimum equilibrium would be achieved where global suffering is diminished or it's at the yes. minimum lowest possible value. Well, yes. if you're just talking about humans, you're giving the argument, you know, for the better, the better angels of our nature, that book, which lays out that argument, fine. Maybe that's true, we can debate it, but let's accept it is true. But when you bring it to the greater circle of beings on our planet, not just humanity, but all the beings, you can make a very good argument that there is an animal Auschwitz out there and well, an animal maybe... genocide, and we are exterminating them so badly that there is such a great amount of suffering yes. on the whole that there's never been such amount of suffering before. And we are the cause for that suffering. Agreed. And maybe we can do something about this. Now, I, I, I mentioned to you before we had this talk, because I, I know uh, that you, you became, uh, are you vegan or vegetarian? I'm vegan. Yeah, I've been vegan yeah. now for six years. Yes. So I mentioned to you that people think that all Buddhists are vegetarian, and it's actually not true. The Chinese are very strict, but actually the Indians and the Thai and the Tibetans and, and the Japanese are not strict vegetarians, as people think. Uh, there's usually the idea that you should keep moderation in your meat consumption, but the idea is that whatever someone gives you and puts you in your bowl, that's what you eat. But I happen to agree with you, and I, I'm one of your guests who's going to come on and say, I happen to agree with you, but I, I should do better myself, I because I am not, and I should be. And I know you always, you, you jump on folks for saying that sometimes, and I, I admit, it, it is my person. I told you I wasn't perfect. This is uh, definitely something I could do better on. But I think we can. Because remember I said the problem was our excess consumption. First off, we can moderate our desires in many ways, I believe. And I believe the answer, the only answer for this will be some kind of artificial protein substitutes in the future that will take the place and you will have a win-win situation in which technology will eliminate our need for animals, the animals will do better, our desire to kill them will be, uh, our reasons to kill them will be removed. This is the only answer. But you see, that's where we disagree here because, and what strikes me is that actually I should be giving the technological solutionism uh, uh, pathway, uh, uh, and, and instead a Zen master is doing it, and I'm going against it. So I would say, and that's true, so you're propo proposing a techno-solutionism 
both with respect to violence and to meat consumption. And, and my answer to this is threefold. First, it strikes me as, a, as, a, as an excuse to wait for a solution to come from the outside rather than the inside. So let's wait for someone to invent, you know, artificial meat uh, and let's wait for it to be cheap enough and easily accessible enough and then we'll all stop eating meat, actually. So we'll diminish suffering that way. But in the meantime, while that is being worked on, I'm going to eat meat in moderation. And I think that's, honestly, that, that's, that's a sorry excuse in my book. Secondly, uh, it's a very anthropocentric uh, argument because think about it this way. If we are dealing with AIs and alien intelligences, as we might one day, and they don't have what we have, what we call humanism, but they have alienism and AIism. And let's, let's say they say, ah, we're not going to kill humans excessively we're just gonna kill them moderately and we're gonna maybe consume them or maybe for sports or for fun but we're not going to do it excessively we're not going to put the human race in danger we're just gonna kill you know as as many as we feel is is a moderate amount of people number of people a few billion here and there but overall it's not gonna put and actually we're going to bring you know equilibrium to the whole planetary system because their population growth is kind of maybe getting out of whack right now so we're just going to kill yes, a few I, billion people. I've often said I hope the future AI and the space aliens who come visit us, they're all good Buddhists because the uh, we're the ones on the receiving end. And we may be the future test animals and the future pets and the future uh, uh, lunch. So I agree with you completely. And but, I wish I had the answer about how to change the human condition. But let me give you the answer and you tell me if I'm wrong because... I was like you uh, and like most of my v viewers for, you know, most of my life. I was 39 years old when I, when I embraced veganism and I grew up in a Bulgarian culture, which is very macho, very kind of uh, eat everything, meat, etc. all the time. If you can afford it, especially it's considered to be, uh, you know, success, a sign of success if you can eat meat all the time, right? just like in North America. And my wife comes from an Italian family, uh, Italian-American especially, and they eat huge amounts of red meat all the time, especially in the summer. But her, in her dad's house, they barbecue all throughout the winter too. And, and there was a time when I would go to my mother-in-law's house and we would have, you know, I would have three burgers. Uh, and, you know, when she sets the table, she, they're a big Italian family, so she sets the table for 12 people or something like that. She doesn't put 12 steaks. She puts 15 or 16 steaks on the barbecue so that there is more, right? So that no one's going home hungry. That's the attitude, right? But then my wife has a half a steak. I'm talking before, right? Her sister had half a steak. Her mom has half a steak. And me and my brother-in-law, we end up eating three steaks, right? So that's All how I... All in moderation. All things in moderation. Well, fine. So the point is, though, I was that person who was waiting for the techno-solutionism until one day I decided to take responsibility for my own actions and say, yes. I don't want to be a part of this anymore. And I made a choice. And 
I think it is possible. And here's the other thing. We didn't phase out meat with my wife. We basically had this big Thanksgiving dinner and in her mom's house. And traditionally, everyone after the Thanksgiving dinner is totally comatose. And everyone, like, imagine 12 people fighting for two couches and just, like, <laughs> struggling to play with the remote control to see what's on TV. That's, like, typical Thanksgiving. And me and my wife looked at each other at that moment, and we said... We've had it. This is enough. We went home. I opened up the fridge. I took out the chicken, the butter, the milk, the yogurt, and I gave it to my in-laws and to, to her sisters. And, and all, we went cold turkey. All we have to do is convince, because you, you are, what you did is great. And as I said, the practitioners of, of Buddhism in the past who, who were able to moderate their desires are great. The trouble is to spread this to millions and millions of people, billions of people in this world. This is the problem. But we can do it. Why not? Why not? And in a single behavior change can save us because it makes us healthier. My blood work has never been better than now. I'm down 35 sure. pounds. I've, I look now younger at 46 almost than I was 36. Nicola, we, we live in a world where you think we have a vaccine and we give it to people and say this will cure a disease and it's free and people turn it down. People are not behaving in rational ways, I, which, is, which is why I propose a crazy solution that may fix a few things. As I often say this. So what are you proposing? You're proposing to do a genetic manipulation so that we breed out or, or we, we engineer out violence. This is, by the way, very close it's, to what some transhumanists, uh, like uh, the hedonistic imperative by David Pierce, namely, are proposing yes. to, to out-engineer violence. First off, the wonderful thing is because I'm not the scientist, I can just kind of toss this out there and say, let someone else figure out how to do this, <laughs> which is so uh, I leave it. I leave it to some of your listeners and guests to actually figure out how to do these these amazing things I'm proposing. Yeah, but transhumanist philosopher David Pierce has the whole idea and has been having it. Uh, and he's, by the way, vegan, but he has had that same idea that you're having. Yes. And it's called but, the hedonistic imperative. And that's the way to, he wants to uh, remove violence from the whole ecosystem, not just humanity. No, no, we don't have to remove, we don't have to remove all violence. Certain, most people in the population go about their day without getting so angry and so violent that they kill someone or they assault someone. If we could just moderate the tendency in the human being to excessive violence, so you could walk down the street at night and my kids could play outside and not have to worry. So I've, you know, I've proposed a couple of things in the book. May I drop them here? Sure, you're dropping bombs so far for a Zen Buddhist. Yeah, I, no, I just, I drop them out and let your, your other guests figure out actually how to do these things. This is my luxury here about being a liberal arts major who just tosses these ideas out and then walks out the door. But I did volunteer, I am a lawyer, and I did volunteer in the prisons for a long time to know that the prisons are hell holes and lives are ruined and people are convicted and tossed in there and- You're talking about the American prison system or the Japanese? I would say anywhere in the world. It's just wasted life. Now, if you, we went to a system in which there was a, 
small device that was implanted in the human body, deep down where it cannot be removed, and it detected, let's say, for example, child molesters. You had someone who has either been convicted of a first offense in a court with a jury and all proper civil rights has been convicted and he is given a choice. Either you go to prison or we will implant this device in you. And when this device detects sexual arousal, it will remove the desire from you. Or if you are someone prone to excessive violence that you cannot control, when it detects hormonal release or certain signs in the brain waves or other physiological indicators that you are becoming irate and violently angry, it will do something, release a tranquilizer, send a... Uh, uh, ameliorating signal to the brain Happiness to reduce the violence, the people would not do violence. They would not harm the children. Now, we have you know, certain primitive substitutes they call chemical castration. They're horrible now. Yeah, and it, it, that's what you're reminding me to, and Alan Turing. And, and you know, the problem is who chooses who? This has been tried before. So Alan Turing, one of the the greatest geniuses of the 20th century, the, no, the that, man who, that was criminal. Who, who supposedly didn't want, win the war, but who cut the war duration by some estimates by three years. He was chemically castrated and, and that brought That was to, 70 to years ago, and it was very primitive. I'm talking about some of the brilliant minds who listen to your show can free these people from prison because they will not commit the crime anymore there would not be recidivism they will live basically the ability to have functioning lives without laying a hand on children without having the desire to lay a hand on a child without becoming so irate that they would do violence and anger and if you could do that they could be functioning members of society the prisons could be turned to schools or hospitals use it and we would not have to lock these people away and throw the key. Maybe they could be out in the world actually earning money and compensating for any damage they've done. I think our future uh, penal system has to go in that direction because I, the prisons, this is inhumane. I agree it is inhumane, but 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 here's the here's the problem. It's like saying, you know, I grew up in communism and it's like, Okay, in theory, communism is a great idea, but in practice, it's horrendous. It's a crime against humanity. Yes. The way the real, the idea, the platonic idea is is okay, but the reality of it is a mere pale reflection on the wall of illusions, and it becomes a nightmare at some point. And I think what you're suggesting is honestly the same to me. Prisons. And uh, psychiatric hospitals, in, in the, you know, they take political prisoners, they put them in a psychiatric hospitals. You must have trial with all civil rights and due process, just like we do now. You do not use these uh, as a, for political reasons. Now, there are people who are going to want to do that. But for the same reason, we don't put uh, political people we disagree with in prison in a democracy. We have trial and a conviction with evidence, and you must have proof. And 
it would be the same. It is, a, it is an alternative by choice to prison. It is not forced on anyone. I want to underline that. We do not force this on anyone. It is an alternative. They can go to prison if they wish. Go ahead. Or you can do this. This is what the judge will hand out at the end of a fair and civil trial. Yeah, it's. I, I see your point. I disagree immensely with you, just like I, by the way, disagree terribly with David Pierce, but it strikes me that you're kind of like the Buddhist transhumanist, if you will, because that's what uh, David Pierce has suggested. That's why I'm here. <laughs> years ago, yeah. And, and and he's actually even more radical than you in the sense that he talks about that we should do it not only for humans, but for the whole ecosystem. He wants lions to sit with lambs. Now, I, I have another proposal about, I told you that one of your brilliant uh, listeners has to come up with ways to find, I, I know you don't believe that there's a single good gene, and I don't believe that either, but there may be ways that uh, to uh, remove the tendency to people to be prone to extreme violence, for example, and, and to be more content and to be more generous. I, I've often said if we could mix the, the sexual urge with the urge to charity, men would go into hotel rooms late at night, put on the, the pay-per-view, and instead of watching porno, they'd see kittens rescued from trees, you know? <laughs> You'd get your jollies by watching acts of charity. People would, would go on Tinder not to, to have a hookup, but to find a chance to build a Habitat for Humanity houses because they would get such arousal. So if we can find a way to make the human body uh, desire to do good in the same way it, it desires, uh, let's say, uh, uh, but isn't chocolate that the ice cream point of sweet. education? Like the whole point of education in general, and especially Zen Buddhist education in particular, is supposed to do that to teach us moderation, to teach us compassion, to teach and us. And it's kind of failed. Why? You said and overall said... we're not doing so bad. I, I, I don't think we're doing so bad, but if we're going to save this world, we've got to do a lot better, which means that all the preachers and all the, the pundits and all, all the Zen teachers and all the, the philosophers, we're not getting through. There is one chance, I think. Buddhism has always gotten people to be more peaceful and more content by offering them substitute pleasures of bliss. When you meditate, for example, if instead of desiring in excess, and instead of wishing to do violence, you learn a certain other bliss of the heart. If we could make these, uh, how to say, these uh, changes to people because uh, voluntary, they would not choose them. They don't want the vaccine. So why are they going to choose to get their genes altered? But if it was in a way where people realize, oh, when you do this, you feel good. It makes you feel healthier and better. You're going to live longer. You're going to be more content. People Wire might heading. do it for the same reason they, right now they take opioids and drink and, uh, and have uh, and wild sex because it makes them feel good. And they eat too much ice cream because it makes them feel good. Well, give them something that makes them feel good that also makes them better. And I think people will voluntarily choose this. We cannot force this on people. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about forcibly 
having people go in to have their genes altered. But if we do invent medical treatments in the future that leave people feeling better and being better, being healthy and feeling healthy, they will voluntarily choose it because it makes them feel good. So that's so, my simple idea. Sure, it's uh, it's it's simple, and I I actually yeah, it's, it's scary for me to be honest with you because I I find it dangerous. But I respect that many ideas have many people have similar ideas, especially in the transhumanist community. Uh, because there's, uh, again, the hedonistic imperative by David Pierce. Uh, there's also the idea, uh, Anders Sandberg is, has talked about uh, love, love drugs, uh, which is, you know, uh, old school uh, love potions now are kind of like love smart drugs, if you will. Uh, and, you know, there's always, especially in the 20th century North America, people have always been searching for the, the shortcut to Zen enlightenment, whether with uh, you know the help of LSD, or, or or whether with the help of any other sort of hallucinogenic drugs, ayahuasca, you name it, people have always looked for the shortcut. But you know, I have always thought, and and here's and this is so, so this is blowing my mind. So I'm more conservative than you, and you're more technologically. Pro, technolo pro technology than me. That, that's, that's, that's amazing to me right now. So I personally have always believed that the shortcut takes double the time. And it's usually not worth it because as a Zen, classical Zen guy might say, it's in the journey, it's not in the destination. But you, it seems, would say, take the pill to enlightenment if you well, have that pill. Well... Uh, one thing is, I don't think it's just one pill and one experience of enlightenment and everyone's going to be perfect. I'm talking about a couple of very relatively moderate adjustments to the human personality. We're more easily satisfied and less and a little more charitable and less prone to extreme violence. I think if you just took those three points and left people otherwise basically as they are, this would be a much nicer world in which many of our most serious problems from war to uh, man's inhumanity to man, to allowing people to be homeless in the street, to global warming, to excess consumption would be dealt with just by those, a little more moderation, a little more caring for others and a little less tendency to extreme violence. That's all. Yeah, well, what am I asking? Not so much. I'm not asking so much. <laughs> I, but you know, the, 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 this, this, this is very scary to me, and it's, it's, it's again blowing my mind because you're Jewish originally, and you know, everyone when someone has tried to do something like that in the past, whether the eugenics movement in the United States or the German okay. scientists uh, in the Third Reich. It's they've been you doing it for the better right. of the human race, right? They did it for the human race. They did. They so, thought they're doing good. So the reason I, I propose this is we are backed into a corner and we have no choice. And let me tell you the two reasons for that. Number one is I think our problems are so serious in this world. We're going to blow ourselves up or we're going to really do some serious damage. People are going to suffer by the billions unless we improve who we are as human beings. But the other reason is, I call it the black hats and the white hats. 
the military is going to start doing this. The big corporations are going to start doing this. They're going to start fooling with our genes. The good guys, of which I consider myself one, and I hope your listeners who are the white hat scientists and researchers have to get ahead of this before the bad guys start using it for the bad reasons. They'll use it to make better soldiers. They'll use it to make better factory workers. They will fool with genes to get someone who doesn't need to sleep and can work in the factory with, with barely a complaint. You know, they'll, get, they'll make us more consuming. They will use this technology to pacify populations. The good guys need to use it to improve human beings before the bad guys. You know, I, I get that. And, and so I'll even grant you as far that the goal is similar to what I would like to see, but the, the path is very radically different because we become what we do. We become the path. And I, I thought this is what, what a traditional Zen position would be, that we are the path. We're not the we end. We are. And so, I told you. I told you we walk up the mountain and every step of the way is our arrival, but we... We have to have a good direction. And I'm just rather frustrated like so many people. I wish I had a solution uh, to global warming. And people say, well, just consume less. And it's not going to happen unless people have more moderate desires and are more easily satisfied. I cannot think of another solution. I wish I could. Well, my, my solution is uh, harder in some ways but it's a solution where we take responsibility and we go in for the long run and we mm. do the we we in theory accomplish the same goals that we you would like to do but without the shortcut and we do that through education we do that through compassion and we do that through patience we can't do it quick there's no quick fixes. Like, again, the shortcut usually takes double the time and causes double the damage. And in the end, it diminishes the the value of what's accomplished. And, and again, I would have thought I'd be giving the argument you'd be giving it, and you'd be giving me the other argument yeah, that I'm I, giving. I think compassion lies in our genes. Really? And I think goodness is in the human makeup. And we are animals who came out of the jungle. A lot of Buddhism, a lot of civilization is to let us leave behind our animal natures, our, our bad, our excess animal but natures. But if what you say natures. is true, though, wouldn't that mean that you cannot improve on compassion or cultivate compassion, if, if you will, if what you say is true? And, and the whole point of Zen and stoicism, etc., is to cultivate compassion, to cultivate uh, modesty, to cultivate... It's, it's uh, all a loop. You teach compassion in the family. You teach compassion in the schools. But you also must start with the body, too. I, I think it would be foolish of us to deny this. And when you have more compassion in the body, it leads to more compassion in the schools and more compassion in the family. It all feeds together. But if you neglect just one, now you can, you can teach people to be more compassionate. But the trouble is we need to do this for billions. We need to do it as a, an entire human race. And this is where you cannot do this one by one. We need to improve who we are as human beings, not to make a master race, not to, uh, to force this on people as a dictator. We need to work to make nicer people, gentler people, 
more wow. giving and generous people. We can. I know we can. And I'm supposed to be a technophobe and I'm giving the anti-tech argument and you're supposed <laughs> to be a, 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 no, I'm supposed to be a technophile and I'm giving the anti-technology argument and you're supposed to be a technophobe and you're giving a pro-technology well, argument. It's, here's it's, the it's thing amazing. too. I, let, Let's let's uh, enough said about that. Another thing about technology that Zen has to offer is we have to learn simplicity again. Now, you know, I, I give the technology and I love computers. I'm talking to you right now over, you know, Zoom and uh, I'm a I'm a I love tech. We have to unplug. We have to learn sometimes simplicity, the old fashioned way to do it, the analog way to pick up the, uh, put the electric guitar down and pick up the, the old uh, wooden guitar. This is what we need to do. We need to learn simplicity and to get away from the keyboards and to get away from the tech. And that's and why, as far as I'm enjoying this now, I would love to do that same thing in person and to come and visit you in person and, and, and to kind of Get the physical vibe presence of your of your your teaching and and your presence and 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 some zazen, uh, maybe in a, in a common space or something like that. Uh, that would be fantastic. You're always and, welcome and phenomenal. But but so, so yeah, I agree with you on the simplicity thing thing too. Uh, but so I'm trying to here to see if 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 we can differentiate between what is Jundo's idea and what is Zen Buddhism's idea here? Because you said this is what Zen can teach us, right? But before that, when we started talking about Zen, you said that if we have a hundred a hundred Zen Buddhists, you have two hundred flavors of what Zen Buddhism is. Well, most Zen books or most Zen teachers focus on events five hundred or two thousand years ago, what somebody said in the Tang Dynasty or in ancient India, or to be in the now. And I thought there were very few books about Zen and Buddhism 500 years from now or 2000 years from now, if we're going to survive. I often say that we got to get a little Buddha in our programming to make sure those computers, you know, uh, are kind to us. Uh, and it's not just Buddhism. I think all humanists, uh, many people of religions uh, share the same morality. We, we want to have a future world of uh, nonviolence. We have to bring not just Buddhist values, but these shared values. But since I'm a Buddhist, I wrote about bringing these Buddhist values into the future of not killing. And, and uh, it has to be uh, something we learn for tomorrow. So, uh, you know, actually, I, I'm here with a little bit of an ulterior, ulterior motive, too. Uh, as you know, I have a very good publisher who published my last book, very conservative, very prestigious Buddhist publisher. And uh, they, they, they wanted, uh, they said, write another book and we'll publish it. And I came to them with this book and they said, oh, no, no, we didn't want science fiction. I said, no, no, no this is not science fiction. It's futurism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you know how this gets all mixed up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's about the future. We want the past. Give us the thousand years ago and what the great Japanese said. No, no, I want to write about the robots. And I want to write about the, when we go to see the space aliens, uh, how do we encounter them? Do we just bring our craziness from Earth to other planets? No, we don't want to hear about that. We want to be in the now, write about that. 
So my publisher rejected my book because it's too futuristic. You know how this is. Nobody understands this futurism thing. So if any of your listeners are out there, you don't got any connections of book agents or something, I got a manuscript here. My publisher says it's too futuristic. That's right. one of the reasons I'm here. Very well. That's <laughs> fair enough too. That's fair enough too. But but uh, let's. So so you're giving us this kind of pro future, pro technology take on Zen Buddhism, which is fair enough. Uh, and again, in moderation. Said, yes, technology in, in moderation. In moderation, but embracing very much uh, technology. Embracing very much, using it for good causes. Yeah. Using it in uh, a fair way respecting people's civil rights not forcing anything on anybody using it for good causes not to make militarism not to make better factories but to make better people yes we can embrace technology why not why do we only have to be about incense and candles why can't we be about <laughs> robots and, and the future sure that's amazing okay and then where does so so that's kind of with respect to the human race but but you know the technological singularity is very much about ai right so what does zen buddhism in general or jundo and his book in particular teach us or tell us about our relationship to artificial intelligence perhaps or or the technological singularity even as a general idea and as a concept like how do we deal with it? Okay, okay. A, couple, a, couple, a couple interesting ideas on that. One of, one, of, one of the things is you often ask the question, what do you think our chance of surviving is, the singularity? You know? And I'm going to tell you, zero. I'm not going to be here even if with your life extension people. If I make it to 140, I'm not going to make it to 141. You and I personally have no stake in this. We're not going to be here. And something else or somebody else is going to come. Will it be human beings? I really don't care uh, because we're, they're going to be maybe as much us as we are Cro-Magnon man. I just want hopefully something good to come, especially for the next few generations because I have kids and my and there, my maybe my grandkids, I can imagine. I hope the world is still here and and not suffering too much with war and global warming. But if you go a thousand years in the future, I really have no stake in it, except I feel compassion for whoever or whatever is alive. Then I would like them to have a good world. So, if it's AI or if it's biological or some combination, I just hope it's a good thing. I'm not too worried. But uh, can I give you uh, one uh, unique, uh, maybe Buddhist take that might help some of your people uh, sure. researching artificial intelligence, that they may be barking up the wrong tree? Sure, please. This is, again, where the non-scientist liberal arts major gets to toss out an idea and then head for the door. So many Asian beliefs would say that the brain is not the cause of consciousness. What the brain does is it's isolating something that already exists. So for example, you know that the, the brain is now, uh, you're, you're taking in all kinds of data through the senses and what the bra brain does is actually eliminates most of it and just yep. pays attention to a few things. Yep. It's the great 
Not, it's the great eliminator. It's a filter. It's a great filter. Many Eastern beliefs, as you already know, might say that what the brain is actually doing is creating a sense of a self in something that is already present. So all you have to do, in a sense, is, is design a brain that, from its complexity, will realize this illusion of separation. And you have a consciousness because there's already the foundation there. Now, what is it? What am I talking about as, as this, this consciousness that already exists? Uh, frankly, uh, I have no idea. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, maybe it's as undiscovered as as electricity was ten thousand years ago. It's something that's present, but uh, I have no scientific proof from this. But I would say the hard problem may not be how can we be conscious coming you know from a matter, but it may be that somehow the consciousness and the matter are already. Uh, one two sides of the same coin and all the brain is doing is creating the illusion of being separate so for example it is possible that what socrates is experiencing as socrates and his self subjective awareness and what jundo is experiencing right now is jundo and your listener is experience uh, your listener is actually one and the same experience broken into three pieces now do, does that make any sense not my job, man. I, mean, <laughs> I think I just the last part, here. the last part of it made sense to me that there is three experiences of the same happening. So we're yes. having a conversation here. That's the happening. There's my experience of the conversation. There's your experience of the conversation. And there's the experience out there of others of our conversation. Hopefully, but it's actually, audience. but it's, it's the actually same one thing. experience. It's one experience taking place in three places, yeah. kind of isolated from each other, but it's one experience broken sure. into three pieces, so something that, like that. That makes sense. Yeah. The other part is harder. The other part that you talked mm -hmm. about, you know, that consciousness and stuff like that, that's harder. And, and I'm trying to see what's the bottom line effect here about how we should prepare for or not prepare for and treat AIs. Because... Again, if you have a bunch of smart people like uh, Elon Musk, uh, Dr. Stephen Hawking, uh, Bill Gates, uh, Steve Wozniak, and many others have gone on the record to say that the birth of artificial intelligence may be the end of humanity. So I wonder, I wonder where does Jundo or Buddhism fit within that kind of, should we be worried about that? And it First seems up, to me that you're not really worried as long as there's some kind of continuation, which is what I kind of had the attitude many years ago. You're not, you don't seem to be worried about AI as long as there is some kind of continuation. First of all, I think that consciousness naturally will arise from some kind of complexity. Like you can see ants or a little conscious, and then you can see uh, maybe birds or s somehow more conscious. If they design certain systems that have a certain amount of complexity, they, this self-reflective uh, awareness, I think, will naturally arise. But that, that's, that's, of course, 
That's the emergent Somebody phenomenon argument, but but then it raises questions like why does a quantum computer not suddenly wake up and evolve consciousness if it's so complex, or why does a hurricane, or a, or a tropical storm, which is a very complex system, not suddenly spontaneously emerge intelligence? Why does the internet not with the right structure emerge? with the right structure closer to whatever neurons are doing, it's emergent and it will just happen. Uh, Basically, you got to figure out uh, the, why the complexity of neurons do that and not the complexity of the hurricane. And then uh, 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 Marvin Minsky would have been out of a job. I, anyway, I don't want to, this is not my, uh, I, 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 as I said, I'm, I just toss this out there and then let someone else deal with it. Not my problem. But let's get to your other question. So in the future, if there are computers, we will only be alive in their programming, if there are future biological entities, our genes will be just a portion of what they are. You know, I, I'm not even my great, great, great grandfather, and I don't even know what his name was. I, 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 I have no evidence for anything, except I know that there was somebody and I'm carrying their genes and I'm carrying amphibians and I'm carrying flowers and whatever was billions of years ago is in me. And the future is going to be no better. As I said, where the ocean the wave rises for a while and then it goes back. But do you know what that also means? Whatever wave arises a thousand years from now or a million years from now or 10,000 years from now is also the ocean, which means it's also us. Not yeah. us, you and me, but us in the big sense. So in so, the big sense, even if we are not here as a species, if humanity, let's say there's a singularity, and let's say, as Elon Musk and a few others have worried about, that means the end of humanity as a species. We are wiped out for one reason or another, yeah. just like yeah. the Neanderthals were wiped out. And maybe there are some Neanderthal genes in us today, uh, you know, uh, but regardless of that, they're a tiny little, little part. They were wiped out or they went extinct. Let's say we go the same way like the Neanderthals, like the dinosaurs did. You're totally okay with that. Because I have a faith in this, uh, you know, if you're a Buddhist, you're kind of optimistic about the universe is actually has some life to it. And it's not just, uh, we're not just here by kind of uh, happens. There, there, there's some, there's some reason that life, it's, it's, it wants to be alive. So you know what happens? I'm going to tell you this. If, if earth screws it up, they're going to get it right now for some sort. There are, the reason the universe looks like all these seeds of pl planets scattered like seeds is I think life is developing all through the cosmos. And if we don't keep going, they'll get it right in that other galaxy. I'm not so worried because again with the ocean thing. But also the machines would keep it going. And again with the ocean metaphor, the machines are kind of part of the ocean and the machines are us in a way because we create them. And it's ju all us. Just it's like all us. just like the dinosaurs and the Neanderthals were all us, and uh, yes. you know, Australopithecus Africanus was us in a way. Lucy was us, and now we're here. And when we go extinct, the machines will be us in a way. So, in the, that kind of Zen sense, Elon sure. Musk shouldn't be worried. The universe is going to go, this is, I don't know if this is what my grandmother would say or old Zenism, but it's going to go where it's going to go. Now you can worry about the singularity, the technological singularity about trying to get there. And I'm going to say, all we can do is 
point the boat in a certain direction and hope it goes in a good direction. And then it's not really our problem. We're not going to be there forever. And the universe as a whole is not concerned about this one little planet. It's all going. And, it's, and if we get it wrong, some other people or, or, or other creature or jelly or whatever they have on these other worlds, they'll get it maybe a little better. Good for them. I'm not worried about it because the universe is just going where the universe is going. And it's perfect the way it is. Well, well, let's try to make our little corner of it for as nice as possible. But yes, it's just going the way it is. And it's not perfect the way it is. It's perfectly what it is. It right. just is what it is. And so if that means extinction of the human race, that's fine. If it doesn't mean extinction, that's fine too. Yeah, but in the meantime, we kind of have a vested interest. Let's try to keep the human race going as long as possible. And, and in the meantime, make this planet as nice and pleasant as possible. Wow, Jundo. So we had many, many unforeseen turns today here in our conversation. And it turns out, you know, a Buddhist can be a lot more pro-future and pro-tech than I ever expected. And I can be a lot more anti-tech and conservative than I expected. Uh, so I'm that, hopeful about tomorrow. Yeah, I, I'm hopeful about tomorrow too. And, and, and I think we could and we should be hopeful. Uh, but but I, do help, I, I do hope we can get to that same tomorrow we're both suggesting is a good place to be at. I hope we get, we both hope to get there through different means and paths. And again, your metaphor stand still but but yeah I, I okay that's fine so we have our different paths there uh and each of them have their pros and cons and their dangers and opportunities i guess well okay so a lesson i learned from your show is that technology is coming whether we like it or not let's use it for good that's the one number of lesson I got from listening to hundreds of hours of your show. It's coming whether we like it or not. Let's use it in a good way. That's all I'm saying. And that's good. And that's good. And I agree with that lesson. The question is, though, how we do that. And the how is very different for you and for me, obviously. And by the way, that's a very stoic uh, lesson. It's a Buddhist lesson, obviously. But it's also a very stoic lesson. The stoics had this metaphor that we are all kind of like dogs leashed on a car, uh, on a horse buggy or on a cart. And, you know, the, the, the horse buggy would be going wherever it's going. And so the dog is on a leash. So it's going to get dragged along the way anyway. Uh, so you can bark and you can pull as much as you want, but you're going to get dragged that way anyway. So, but you can choose to make the best of it and not drag yourself down, but, but rather make the best of what you've got. That's like kind of the, the stoic idea is that we're working within constraints, but we can find happiness and we can find a way to make a difference within that constraint, even if though fate is like that cart and we're all leashed to it and it's pulling us along a path we have no control over. Well, we're, we're not only being pulled along, we also get to steer it a little bit too. Right. Hopefully, hopefully we do. Hopefully we do. Well, Jundo, where can people find more about you and your work? Well, I have a, a, an online Zen group uh, that we started about 16 years ago for 
people who, and this was way before COVID, people who could not get to the usual temple or Zazen group. So they started sitting online. We have disabled individuals, people living everywhere from, uh, I have a social worker in Africa who's in the village and he sits with us. Uh, well, and then he goes and, and you know, deals with people in their malaria work uh, in Africa. And all these people come together online to sit and, and uh, learn a little about uh, Zen and Buddhism. And it's called treeleaf.org, O-R-G. Treeleaf is one word. And uh, that is uh, the group uh, that uh, I uh, basically uh, organized and, uh, and where we sit Zazen. And you also have the everything dash of dash zen zen of everything oh sorry podcast. zen yes. dash of dash everything.com uh, i think it is zen of everything podcast yes yes we have that too yeah and, i think uh, it's fun i think the podcast is fun i i've listened to probably now half the episodes like you have i think about 67 episodes i probably listened to 30 episodes in the last two or three days yes so. as you probably gathered i'm a zen guy who occasionally is not hesitant to say a couple of controversial things and, and to offer an opinion no yeah and and i mean the zen zen people have always been kind of like the jazz musicians of buddhism in a way right so <laughs> so if if we take classical buddhism as classical music then Zen, you know, and, and especially maybe Soto Zen would be like the jazz musicians are to classical music. They're kind of like out there pushing, claiming, making a ruckus, as Seth Godin would say, you know, making a ruckus one way or another, playing a joke on the joke of life and on the joke of the universe and pushing and challenging and stuff. So... So I think uh, you you've managed to do that today. Well, I uh, if uh, one of the my my last book was actually uh, Zen Master's Dance was actually about how the the universe is like a big jazz set, and we just have to learn to hear the music and realize we are the music. Wow, that's amazing. So so Jundo, what's the the parting message that you'd like us to send us with? We have to keep working to have our dreams and our goals and to make this world better. And we're gonna have technology and all I want is that it's used in a humane and good way that respects people's rights and makes people more gentle and moderate. We can work for this wonderful, great world that you're always talking about here, but also realize right now, there's nothing to achieve and nothing necessary more to add learn to rest completely in this moment and feel the wholeness of it and the, the fact that you don't always need to get to the next place. You can be just right here. As you're walking up the mountain, be content in the arrival of every step by step on the way. That's it. Roshi Jundo Cohen, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Nicola. It was uh, such an honor. If you guys enjoy this show, you can help me make it better in a couple of ways. You can go and write a review on iTunes, or you can simply make a donation. 